You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Happy New Year and welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Well, yesterday, the nation marked one year since the violent and deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Among the reporters who witnessed the attack firsthand was Washington Post senior congressional correspondent Paul Kane, and he joins us now. Paul, welcome to First Look. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Happy to be here. So, Paul, as you look back on January 6th, 2021, what, memory, what memories come to mind for you? Um, you know, I've, we've written a couple different remembrances about that specific day. Um, and I was just talking to your producers about something that I, I wrote for our style section. And, um, you know, I was in the Senate, in the Senate press gallery, just above the chamber as it all unfolded. And Mike Pence was evacuated and police ran around locking down the doors. And it was 15 minutes in which we were just sort of there, um, not sure what was happening. And Amy Klobuchar at one point stood up and looked at her phone and said, shots were fired. Um, shots had not been fired uh, yet. Uh, that happened on the House side about 15 minutes later. Um, it was lots of confusion. And finally, they figured out a path to have the Senate evacuate down the back stairwell and into the uh, Capitol Visitor Center, where there are all sorts of fortified areas and bunkers. It was built uh, after 9-11. It had been, there had been people trying to build it for a long time, but after 9-11, they built it as both a visitor center and also a place of uh, sort of last resort in the event of an attack, it cost more than $600 million, took eight or nine years to build. Um, so that was the destination. We were all heading there. The senators went out down a back stairwell and another stairwell into the basement. The press and staff up above on the third floor went into elevators. We went straight down to the basement. And when we ran, got to the escalator where we were supposed to go into the visitor center, there was one Capitol Police officer there holding the doors with both of his hands like this, yelling at us, don't go this way, go the other way, go the other way. The CVC, the Capitol Visitor Center, has been breached. Um, and he was all by himself, one guy, holding two doors shut, telling about 95 U.S. senators, uh, 30 or 40 staff, and 30 reporters, you know, keeping us from going into an area where the, uh, where the insurrectionists were. And a few weeks later, during the impeachment trial, um, the House managers produced video, lots of different video from the surveillance videos around the Capitol. And they showed this video of Chuck Schumer going through for what most people would have looked like just random doors and then racing back 20 seconds later from those random doors. Um, I recognized it right away. Those were the CVC doors that we were supposed to go through and go into. Those were the doors where all of the senators uh, were supposed to go through to go find our secure location in the CVC. And Schumer had been, as a leader, he got out about you know 30 seconds or so ahead of us. And he got within eyesight of a bunch of the rioters. And so him and his security detail turned around and raced back. And that's when that one officer was sitting there holding the doors and directing us to safety, uh, where we went and found a uh, 
a committee room across the street after going through underground tunnels and all the rest. And, you know, it was, you know, he, as best I know, that particular officer did not clash in that setting with any rioters or insurrectionists, but he was a, you know, a lone officer manning his post, trying to keep us safe. And to me, that was the definition of that day. You know, Paul, I want to, you know, as I, you know, we've been hearing stories from members of Congress uh, for the entire year now uh, about their experiences during that day. But um, we've also finally have been hearing stories from reporters who were there also experiencing that. So I want to thank you um, for sharing that, for sharing that particular story, but also um, for just being an an excellent reporter and sort of reminding everyone that you're not just there, you know, reporting, that you are experiencing these things. Uh, and yeah. I'm sure there are folks out there who are also hoping that you are okay, because that is quite an experience um, unlike any that anyone will ever experience. Paul, yesterday I talked to the chairman of the January Select Committee, uh, uh, Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi, and he told me that the committee has evidence that current members of Congress may have aided Capitol um, insurrectionists. Do you have any reporting on members who have been identified and what their exact roles were? Um, this has been a, a frustrating uh, thing for almost a year now, uh, a day or two after um, the insurrection. Uh, it started with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, a Democrat from uh, North Jersey. Uh, she was on a uh, some sort of virtual town hall with uh, her constituents. She actually used the phrase reconnaissance tours, where she had mm -hmm. heard there were Republican members who gave tours to people who a day or two later would take part in the January 6th riot. Um, and that has been, that spawned a lot of this talk that there was, you know, direct involvement by some Republicans in this. Um, to date, there has been no real evidence to back up that particular charge that there was, you know, they brought these people in and gave them tours of the building so that they would know where to go uh, during the attack on the 6th. That, that part of this has not so far at least has not been proven at all but the more that the media have dug into this the more that uh this committee this january 6th committee is is mucking around and getting text messages from mark meadows and and others they're seeing that some of the most extreme conservative members of the house were definitely working with organizers of this of, of the initial protest and we're in contact with people about this. It's the question is how deep did it go? Um, mm -hmm. Trump advisor Peter Navarro has basically written a book and done interviews claiming that, you know, the, the he was working very closely with Ted Cruz and some of the House Freedom Caucus members on the plan. Uh, they had came up with a term for it, like the, the Green Bay Swamp or something like that. Sweet, like, so, Green Bay Sweep. Sweep. Okay, sweep, swamp. Yeah, I don't know. Same it's thing, early. Yeah. It's early. I, I need more of my Washington Post mug coffee. Um, <laughs> Have a sip. But yeah. Okay. But um, so there is, there, there, there's, there's growing hints, suggestions, 
connections that they were definitely there were some members that were definitely involved in planning for the rally that took place that then led Trump to call for his supporters to go march to the Capitol and that there were there were members of Congress that were definitely working with Trump advisors on this plan to you know try to overthrow the results of you know enough states mm-hmm. uh, it, it was six states they were going to challenge and right. that was those added up to something like 70 or so electoral college votes and if they could invalidate more than 36 of those electoral college votes then joe biden would not have the necessary amount to become president um and that that was always part that was the plan right. and they were working with with them so mm-hmm. we're waiting to see the full extent Right. And and to be clear, I asked Chairman Thompson because he did say that they do have evidence that tours were given in the Capitol by members of Congress. But what he did not say, he did not draw a connection that those tours were, quote unquote, reconnaissance. Uh, But and I did ask him, wasn't the Capitol closed because of covid? And he responded, yes, it was. But members of Congress um, could override that to bring people people in and to tour them around. Paul, we have run we have run out of time, um, but I do want to thank you for coming to first look and to have a good weekend. All right, thanks, Jonathan. Sure thing. Wow, we're going to keep the conversation going uh, with the opinions roundtable on the other side. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, E.J. Dion and Jennifer Rubin. Welcome both. Welcome back to First Look. Happy New Year. Happy Good New Year. Good to be with you, Jonathan. Happy New Year. And with Jen. Happy. <laughs> right. So, um, E.J., you called President Biden's speech yesterday the best speech of his presidency. And that speech was, um, it was searing. Uh, yesterday and a definitive response to uh, Donald Trump and the big lie, though he never mentioned the former president by name. Why did you think it was the best speech of his presidency? Well, I think it was his best speech, both in terms of style, delivery, force, and real passion um, that uh, Joe Biden in earlier speeches has given perfectly fine speeches. I tend to agree with President Biden on things, but he in, he has never had, in my view, the passion uh, that he conveyed in that speech yesterday. So on style, I think it was very important, but on substance, uh, it was even more important. Joe Biden has been the we can all get along bipartisan president uh, who remembers the Senate going all the way back uh, to uh, 1973 when he first showed up uh, in the Senate after getting elected as a very young man in 1972. He really, really hoped he could create the Washington of that era. Um, Yesterday, Joe Biden was unrelenting in saying there are still a few Republicans, uh, you know, alluding to people like Liz Cheney, uh, who are standing up for, uh, for the Constitution. I'd like to work for them. But he really condemned uh, Republicans who are going along with the big lie or not challenging it and really challenge them uh, to put up and uh, break with Trump, even though he has uh, no expectation mm-hmm. of that. 
And I think it was a very good setup to the speeches he and Vice President Harris are going to give next week on voting rights down in Atlanta. Um, and right. I think that what's really important is that it be a one-two punch. This speech, powerful as it was, needs to be followed up by uh, just as strong a speech next week. You know, Jennifer, I've long contended that um, Joe Biden, as a candidate and as president, is never more animated and never more clear and focused and direct than when he is talking about, quote unquote, the soul of America. He kicked off his campaign talking about Charlottesville. There were many moments during the campaign, um, certainly his inaugural address, uh, and then certain speeches on voting rights um, over the last year where he is as direct, as clear, as passionate. But I'm wondering, Jennifer, your thoughts on President Biden's speech and, and also the fact that, you know, President Biden placed direct blame on Donald Trump, not by name, uh, but by inf strong inference for the events of January 6th uh, and condemning him as a threat to democracy. Do you think this is a turning point uh, for Biden's presidency and our democracy? Well, it was Mario Cuomo who said that you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. But in fact, you have to govern with a bit of poetry as well and a bit of righteous anger. And I think that's what he showed. They came into office, as EJ alluded to, with this notion that we could all get along. And moreover, that if they simply ignored Trump, he would somehow deflate and become inconsequential in our politics. And instead, what happened is that the big lie metastasized and hardened, and the president was really nowhere to be found. And without a very strong voice from the Oval Office, the press will not do that. The rest of the party will not do that. There won't be outside groups to do that. It has to come directly from the president. And if he is going to defend American democracy, as he promised he would do in the campaign, then he's got to get out in front of the parade and lead it and lead it in a definitive way. You can't talk about the threats to democracy without talking about Donald Trump. Uh, my friend Bill Crystal said it's like talking about December 7 and not mentioning the Japanese. Um, you have to go to the source of the threat. And I do hope it's a turning point in a couple respects. One, I think a shorter, punchier, more forceful speaking style uh, is good for Biden when he devolves into dependent clauses and you folks and come on guys and um, literally all his other little verbal tics, um, he loses the audience. So I hope the speaking style stays with it. Secondly, I hope he remembers that democracy is his job description. That is just as important as leading the fight against COVID, as reviving the economy, as working on climate change, as defending uh, Europe against Russian aggression. That is part of his job description, perhaps the most important part. And he can't simply defend democracy by saying, well, democracy works, we can deliver all these economic things. He's got to defend democracy on the merits, if you will. And I think the mm -hmm. final thing is that it is so easy for Republicans to play the who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? And Biden literally said to people, close your eyes, remember January 6th. And I thought that was so powerful because people do have some common sense. People do remember. And while there remains a very hard faction of Republicans, the MAGA crowd, that refuses to recognize reality, in fact, 
at least two thirds of Americans do. I know that sounds low, but at least it's two thirds. And two thirds in an election is a very high number, is a governing majority, a super governing majority. So I hope for all those reasons he continues on and that he puts the, well, democracy will work itself out if I produce economic results theory Mm -hmm. behind. Um, we have a shorter we have a shorter first look than usual because of my my interview with Chairman Thompson. Um, so we've got keep your answers brief. But can we just talk about the the presence not only of former Vice President Dick Cheney with his daughter Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who's the vice chair of the January Select Committee? One, two, they they were the only Republicans at the commemoration yesterday uh, at the Capitol. And three, former Vice President Dick Cheney, who Democrats delighted in calling Darth Vader and you know sponsoring articles of impeachment against him and all, were greeting him like a hero. Can we just talk about the significance of that yesterday? EJ, you go first. Uh, first, I just want to one quick point on something Jen said, which I so yeah. agree with. If Biden is going to get through his economic program, he needs to look strong and be strong. And so paradoxically, being strong about democracy can help the rest of his program. But I agree with you, Jonathan, that was an extraordinary sight. And I've always been puzzled by Dick Cheney because I remember as a reporter dealing with Dick Cheney when he was a member of Congress, and he was a very reasonable guy to talk to. And then there was the Dick Cheney of the period when he was vice president, uh, when obviously, to put it gently, I had rather passionate disagreements uh, with him. In an odd way, the Cheney who was there uh, was the Cheney that I remember from years ago, who really took the process of democracy seriously. But I think the other side of that that you pointed to is also important, which is they were the only Republicans there. It's really scandalous, and yes, Some of the senators were Johnny Isaacson's funeral, the the late senator. That's fine. That's honorable. But nobody else was there. And that's really troubling. Uh, Jennifer? Yeah, I think we have to remember um, this is a great lesson for an era in which the defenders of democracy have to overlook partisan differences, that there is a difference between disagreeing even passionately, strongly um, with someone on substance, even something as substantive as torture or the war in Iraq. And then there is sharing a fundamental belief that elections matter, that the truth matters, and whoever is on the latter train um, is uh, my friend and should be the friend of others who defend democracy. We really have to get past whatever partisan differences, policy differences, even strong ones, if we're going to defend democracy. That's the great lesson we've seen in Hungary and other countries that have slipped into illiberal regimes, that when the opposition fractures, then the autocrat really takes hold. So um, it's very sad that it's just the Cheney family. Maybe we can expand that next time to the Bush family too. Um, But I do think um, that other Republicans need to come forward. And I'll have a little bit more to say in my Sunday column about what sort of Republicans join that force. <laughs> Talk about a tease. Well, here's, an, here's another tease in the, I think, three minutes that we have left. Um, in my interview with Chairman Thompson, chair of the select uh, January 6th Select Committee, said he mapped out 
the the plan for public for uh, public hearings uh, of the committee. They are going to be they're going to be televised. They are going to be in prime time, um, but also they're going to be sequential. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, not spread sprinkled throughout the spring. EJ, you go first. Talk about the impact of something that huge, and if if I'm not mistaken, that unprecedented. Well, you know, when they have laid out their plans for this, I am very happy they're doing these televised hearings, and I like the way you describe them as sort of sequential and right up front. Um, if you go, there have been hearings in American history that have had an enormous effect over the long run. Um, the most prominent, of course, are the Watergate hearings. And I think for people old enough or for people who love their history, these hearings could well remind us of the Watergate hearings. Now, fortunately, the president involved is no longer in office. But for people out there to have a committee lay this out, the job of Congress is to legislate. It can be to investigate, but it's also to inform the public. Uh, and I think these could be hugely valuable in laying out exactly what happened. And it may eventually even lead to prosecutions as happened out of the Watergate investigation. Right. And Jennifer, to my mind, the reason why this would be unprecedented, having a hearing, televised hearing is an unprecedented. To my mind, what makes it unprecedented is that it, the hearings aren't going to be during the daytime. They're going to be at night when you know most people are home from work, um, when they're gathered around the dinner table or they're in the living room. And this is the, these are the kinds of hearings that will be spread out, not just on one television network, but oh, I was going to say, all of them. Maybe. We'll see what Fox News does. But uh, in the 90 seconds we have left, your, your thoughts on the impending hearings. I agree with EJ. I think this is a great thing. I was very much encouraged when we saw that relatively short hearing on holding um, Mr. Meadows in contempt when Liz Cheney began to read excerpts of those uh, text messages from members yeah. of Congress. She did it in the evening. Um, I don't think it was quite prime time, but it was in uh, the evening. Um, it was dramatic. It was forceful. And what that does is it forces the press to cover it. This has been one of my uh, constructive criticisms, if you will, the mainstream media, that they have not given this issue the prominence it deserves. What Benny Thompson and what Liz Cheney are doing is they are forcing the press, they are forcing the people to look this right in the eye and to come to terms with what happened. And I think that's a brilliant strategy. I think that's exactly what's necessary. And even if it changes no one's mind, I think this is a service to history and it's simply the right thing to do. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right with Congresswoman Cheney not only reading the text messages, but not but not um, censoring herself in terms of expletives, keeping it real, keeping it raw to let people for people to understand just how serious January 6th uh, was. I want a yes or no because we literally have 30, 30 seconds left. Should it should the committee present a criminal referral against Donald Trump? if they have the evidence, yes or no, EJ? If they have the goods, yes. Jennifer. Yes. yes. EJ Dion, Jennifer Rubin. <laughs> we, we do really have to go now. Thanks for coming on First Look. Have a great weekend. You Good too. to be with you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, 
Go to WashingtonPostLive.com.